Well, I know when I get up in the morning and go and get in my car and turn it on that it's going to get me from point A to point B. That is from my house to my office six days out of the week. I, I, I trust that that's going to happen. And I know that to, to make that happen, I need to keep gas in my car and I need to keep the tires inflated and I need to keep the oil changed with relative consistency. But if you said, okay, that's great, Pastor PJ, but open up the hood and explain to me how the engine works to get you from point A to point B, at, at that point, I'm, I'm really going to have nothing to offer you. Uh, I did not grow up in a mechanics family, nor did I grow up with friends who were mechanics or handy. And so uh, if you're asking me to explain a combustion engine, I can't. And, uh, and I, I don't know how it works. I know that it does work. And I have confidence and trust that when I get in my car, my car's engine will perform the way it's supposed to perform, the way it's designed to perform, to get me from my home to my office. But as far as the details, I, I don't really know what I'm dealing with. Now, if I had a mechanic come and begin to pull apart the engine and explain what each part did and show me and walk me through the, the complexities of the engine in my car, well, then I would have a better understanding of it. And it would probably give me an increased level of confidence to know what my engine is doing as I'm driving from my house to my office. Sometimes doctrines within Christianity can be a little bit like that. For instance, the doctrine of your salvation you know it works because you've read about it. You know it works because you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him, and that he's given you his spirit as a seal, as a guarantee of the, the future life that you will spend with him for all of eternity. You know those big ticket items when it comes to your salvation. But if you were to, so to speak, lift up the hood and, and open the hood, look under the hood, of your salvation and some of the doctrines of your salvation, well, then it's going to get a little less clear for us. In the book of Hebrews, we've been talking a lot about Jesus as our high priest. We've talked about the idea of Jesus as the one who mediates for us, who intercedes for us. We've talked a little bit so far, and we're about to talk a lot more about it in the coming weeks here, about the temple system and why Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. But some of those components and parts are a little bit like the engine in the car. Uh, yeah, we trust that it works, but just don't ask us to explain how or why it works the way that it, it does. When we come to Hebrews chapter 8, it's going to be like our author is that guide that I wish I had for my car engine that could explain the different components for me. Our author in Hebrews chapter 8 is going to begin to unpack and show us the details and pull it apart in a way that helps us to begin to understand more of the precision elements of our salvation, more of the precision elements, the fine-tuned details of what it means that Jesus is our high priest and why that matters at all, and specifically what it means that he has guaranteed and secured for us, enacted, as the text says for us, a better covenant. So take your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 8, and as you do, let's just do a little refresher about where we've been so far in this series. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Hebrews, we found that, that Jesus has the better message. That was the opening couple of verses. Long ago, and in, in many ways and many times, God spoke through our forefathers, right? Through the prophets. But now, he contrasts that. But now, but today, we've got the message from his son, which is the distinctly better message. He also, in chapters 1 and 2, said that Jesus is better than the angels. 
The angels were the mediators of the law between God and Moses there on Mount Sinai. Well, Jesus is the, the mediator of a better covenant, even as we're going to talk about in, in more detail tonight. So he's better than the angels. He's also has a, he's got a better name than anyone else. For to which of the angels, as the writer says, did God ever say, today you are my son, I have today begotten you, right? That Jesus has that better name. Chapters one and two. Chapter three, then, we got into this concept of Jesus and Moses. And the writer's telling these former Jewish readers, hey, look, remember Moses? And they're going, yeah, of course we remember Moses. Well, as great as Moses was, he's saying Jesus is better. In fact, Jesus did what Moses couldn't do because Jesus offers us a better rest. You remember in chapter three, he was writing and he said, you know, if, if Joshua had given them the rest that God was really after, then why would he have written about another rest to come at a, a later time? And so Jesus offers this better rest than Moses or Joshua. That's chapter three. Chapter four, then chapter five, we begin to be introduced to the concept of Jesus as our better high priest. He's not one that can't sympathize with us, right? But he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can draw near to the throne of God because we've got this better high priest in chapter five, four and five. And then in chapter six, he pushed pause and he got into the kitchen of his audience, so to speak, and he threw down a little bit with them because he said, look, we've got some problems here. Some of you, you've become dull of hearing. Some of you, hey, by this time, you ought to be able to teach other people these things, and yet you need to, to be reminded of the basics and, and the, the fundamentals. And then he got even more heated when he said, look, some of you, some of you are, are even out here and you're right on the verge of, of just completely walking away because you haven't committed to Jesus and you're on the fence and you are at risk of apostatizing. You're at risk of, of completely willfully rejecting God and walking away. And you need to be warned that if you do that, it's over for you. It's in chapter 6, that wake-up call that he gives. But then the, the back half of chapter 6, he gives that encouragement where he talks about the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to those promises. And he reminds us that if we are in Christ, we can bank on those promises. We can have security and surety in our standing with Christ because we've got the anchor of our soul that's gone behind the veil, behind the, the, the curtain. Again, some of that temple language that seems like some of the components in the engine. Like, okay, what's he talking about here? And then in chapter 7, as we looked at last week together, you've got Jesus is of a better priestly line. He's better than, than the Levitical priest because he's a priest after the order of this funny guy that we don't really understand a whole lot about, this guy Melchizedek. And Jesus comes after his order. So this is where we've been in the book of Hebrews so far. And the emphasis, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is what? Better. And you can see that as you look at the screen up there. And you can see all the different things that we've covered so far and how the author has been telling us, reminding us, Jesus is better. Even warning us against drifting from Jesus. Because there's nothing better out there aside from Jesus. Well, now as we come to Hebrews chapter 8, we come to this concept now where he's continuing the development of this theme of the, the, the priesthood of Jesus. In fact, for chapter 8, for chapter 9, for chapter 10, those three chapters at least, and then perhaps some more as we go on, but certainly chapter 8, 9, and 10, he's dealing a lot with the priesthood of Jesus. And so if we're going to understand what's coming, chapter 8 is a real helpful primer for us on that. Helps us to understand what it means that he is the priest, why that matters, what that has to do with the presence of God, the holy of holies, the sacrifice that he has to offer, and the covenant that comes along with all of this. So that's where we're going in our text tonight. 
Look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The writer says, now the point in what we are saying is this. That's always helpful, isn't it? When the author says, hey, let me give you a giant red flag that says pay attention. The point, if you want, what are we saying? What's the point with all this Melchizedek stuff? With all this Jesus is the better high priest stuff, all the way back from chapter 4 onward. What's the point? The point, he says, is this. We have such a high priest. What kind of a high priest? Well, not a human high priest. Not a high priest after the Levitical order. Remember, they were limited because they were mortal. And they couldn't keep serving. They would die. And then there would have to be another high priest after them and another high priest and another high priest. And the other bad part about those high priests were their sacrifices weren't sufficient. Because they kept having to offer them over and over and over again. But the author's saying, no, the point is this. We have such a high priest. We have a better high priest. We have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. One, he goes on to say, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Where is Jesus right now, y'all? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's what the text says right here. That's where Jesus is. Psalm 110 says, waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. But Jesus is not in our hearts right now, y'all. I hate to disappoint you. You've got the spirit of God dwelling within you, but Jesus himself is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, as we're reading right here. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places. Well, a minister is one who serves others. So how is Christ a minister right now at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high? Well, you remember chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, where it says in verse 25, consequently, or just verse 25, forget 26, Uh, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since, here's his ministry, he always lives to make intercession for them. So the writer's saying, we have a high priest who is busy about serving us still. Remember Jesus' words on earth, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, he's given his life as a ransom for many, but he's still serving us through interceding for us in the presence of God the Father, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. It's an interesting concept, the true tent. What would have come to mind for his audience and what should come to mind for us is the concept of the the tabernacle. The, The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the temporary dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant, and above the Ark of the Covenant, on the, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, was what was known as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place wherein God's glory would descend to meet with Moses, to speak with Moses from within the, the tabernacle in what came to be known as the, the most holy place. And it was the most holy place because it was the place where God's glory resided. And so now the author is saying, Jesus is in as the high priest. He's in the most holy place. But notice it's the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. Well, the tabernacle eventually turned into this behind me, and that's the temple. And what you see there up on the the drawing is you see at the the front part there on your right is the, the entrance to the temple. And you've got some, some different uh, elements of, of the worship, the Old Testament cultic sacrificial system that is, was there in the, the entryway. But then you've got this divider, this giant wall. And in between the wall is the veil. And then on the other side of that is the Holy of Holies. And just even in that front part, that part to the right here for you, that part, only the, the, the Levitical priests were allowed into that area. But then beyond that veil in the Holy of Holies, where the the Ark of the Covenant rested between those two gigantic angelic creatures up there, 
That was where the glory of God had temporarily taken up residence with the people of Israel. In fact, if you're doing the DBR with, uh, with us right now, we're reading in Ezekiel. And tomorrow, I think you're going to read Ezekiel chapter 10, where God, in his judgment against the sinfulness of Israel, he very plainly illustrates vividly and literally the glory of God departing from the temple. Okay? But during the time of Moses and the priesthood and David and the kings and everything, this was the way that God dwelt with his people, separated from them in this tent that became the temple that is the holy of holies, the most holy place. And whereas you and I can walk in here and you can walk over into our main worship center and you can walk up on stage and stand behind the pulpit and and nothing's going to happen to you, if you were to walk into the temple in an unworthy manner, and certainly if you were to walk into the Holy of Holies without being the high priest on the one day a year he was allowed to enter in there, you would die. There's a lot of background to what we're driving at here because the author is painting this picture of Jesus now in the Holy of Holies. Let's talk about this place a little bit more. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, verses 20 through 22. It's a description of this meeting place, specifically of the mercy seat. The cherubim, these angelic creatures, shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, the Ten Commandments. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. Again, this is the place where God met with his people. Inside the holiest place, the most holy place. Uh, Exodus 26, 33 through 34. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Inside the veil, in that diagram that we saw up there. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place was the place on the right where the Levitical priest could enter. But then there was the most holy place that's separated by the veil. And the veil shall separate you the most holy place from the holy place. Verse 34, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. I referenced it earlier. Take your Bibles and and turn over to Leviticus chapter 16. And if you've got a bookmark or a fat finger or something like that, just put it there because we're going to be there uh, a few times in this message. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is describing what we know of as, or what we call rather, the day of atonement. And the day of atonement was a, a, a day once a year where the sins of Israel corporately as a nation were atoned for through a ceremony that involved the high priest entering into this most holy place. In fact, this was the only day during the Israelite calendar where the the high priest was able to enter into the presence of God like this. And so in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read this. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. You remember they had the strange fire way before John MacArthur addressed it, yes? And, and they, they had this offering that was not acceptable to the Lord, and the Lord killed them. Well, 
the Lord says this to Moses in verse 2. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Okay, we're talking about the most holy place now, the place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Why would he die? He says, because I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God's saying, because my presence is going to be there, and Aaron is a sinful high priest. He's a high priest, but he's a sinful man, and his sin and my glory cannot coexist. So if he comes in the most holy place, guess what? Aaron's dead. So God is warning Moses to tell him, hey, warn him not just to walk in here flippantly. But then there was this day when he was allowed to. Look at verse 6 of Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, 6, he was allowed to go in, but first he had to deal with his own sinfulness. Leviticus 16, 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house, okay? He had to make an offering for his own sin before God before he could go into the most holy place. Drop down to verse 11, Aaron shall present the sin offering, the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil into the Holy of Holies. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. This is all to make sure that Aaron is able to be in the presence of God just for a moment, just temporarily, to atone for his sin so that he may not die. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, again, into the holy of holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Okay, you see why this is a bit like a car engine all of a sudden? We're like, okay, what? Um, what I want you to get here is that in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the temple and even during the, the era of, of Jesus here, there's this concept of the holy of holies that is a place where God's glory resided and he, it was completely separated from mankind, okay? So the high priest could go in there to represent the people, but he could only go in there to represent the people once a year, one day a year, and that not even for the full day. And when he went in there, he had to go in there admitting, acknowledging, confessing his own guilt and imperfection. And he had to bring an offering for himself before he could bring an offering for the people that he represented. Now back in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says that Jesus is our high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Y'all, this scene in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, this is the greatest holy of holies that there ever has been. The right hand of the majesty of God. And here is Jesus, our high priest, 
who is there in this greater sanctuary, the true tent, not that hands built, but that God set up. Jesus is in the the true paradigm of the holy of holies, in the very presence of God, the permanent residence of God. He is before him. And notice, he is not sprinkling blood. He is not bringing incense. He is not cowering in fear. Where is he? He is seated, which represents what? Completion, finished work. If there's one thing that an Old Testament high priest never would have done in the Holy of Holies, it would be to sit down. He was there to work on behalf of the people. He was not there to bask in the glory of God. He was there fearfully, reverentially, to do his job. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the true tent, this greater sanctuary that he's in. Again, a reminder of the superior priesthood of Jesus. Because look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 8. Now, if he were on earth, Jesus that is, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's saying, if we look at the Levitical law, Jesus is not a priest. Because Jesus comes from the, the tribe of what? Judah, and the priests come from the tribe of Levi. So from, an, from the law standard, Jesus doesn't qualify as a priest on earth. But in heaven, in the greater sanctuary, the greater holy of holies, Jesus absolutely qualifies as the priest because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest after a different order. And now he's there, he's seated, he's interceding, he's the minister for us, always living to make intercession for us in that place. And he's able to stay there. Why? Well, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every respect as we are yet without what? Sin. And that's why our high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the greatest of all holy of holies. So as you think about the mechanics of your salvation, understand first tonight that there is a superiority of Jesus' sanctuary. That is, he is your high priest He's not going into a temple built by human hands. He's not going into a holy of holies where there's an ark of the covenant that is built by human hands with angels overlaid with gold mined by human hands. He's not going in with coals from a, a fire that has been kindled by human hands. He's not going in with the blood of bulls and of goats when he goes into the holy of holies. No, he is in the holiest of holies. He is in the heavenly sanctuary. He is in the true abode of God and he is seated there and he is there until the Lord sends him back for his bride and he will always be there doing what? As the minister on our behalf. See, the high priest on earth would go in as a minister on behalf of the people, but not forever and ever, but only one day a year could he go in. You and I have a high priest in Jesus who right now is permanently seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He does not have to leave that place because he is there because he is the perfect sinless high priest and he and he alone can be there and is qualified to be there. This introduces this contrast between the earthly and the heavenly that's going to be developed more a little bit in this chapter, but also in in chapter 9. But again, think back to to this image here of the the tabernacle or of this is of the, the temple and the separation that's created here. And now look at chapter 8, verse 5. I know I skipped verse 3. I'll come back to verse 3. So if you're wondering, I'll I'll come back. Don't worry. Your OCD itch will be scratched. Look at verse 5. 
he's talking again about the contrast between Jesus as a priest of a different order and the earthly priest that served according to the law. Because he says this in verse 5, they, these earthly priests, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Okay, so here you have Moses constructing this split here because this was not as ornate, but there was a similar division in the tabernacle as to what we find in the temple. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, Moses constructed this according to this pattern, this vision that he saw on the mountain. Uh, this goes back to what we read about in Exodus. Exodus 25, 9, Moses is receiving instructions on the construction of the tabernacle. It says, I want you to build it exactly as I show you concerning, notice the language there, the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And so Moses has a glimpse of the heavenly abode of God, the heavenly dwelling of God, the heavenly tabernacle sanctuary, and he's supposed to, 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 to pattern the one on earth after this. Exodus 26, 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Again, shown a picture, an, an image, a model, a concept of what he was supposed to go and construct. Exodus 27, 8. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And now here in, in verse 5, our writer calls them a shadow or a copy. All of these things about the tabernacle, all of these things about the, the, the temple, they were all meant to point to a greater reality. And that greater reality is the actual heavenly sanctuary in the dwelling place of God where Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, the better sanctuary. But just like the high priests of old, there is a similarity between Jesus and them. That's where verse three comes in. Back, back up with your eyes to verse three. He says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Again, the, the Levitical priests they, they couldn't just come into the temple with nothing to offer. Their job was to bring a sacrifice so that God's wrath would be averted and diverted from his people. Something that would take the place on the behalf of the people. And, and these sacrifices there were part of what's known as the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, we find it in the book of Exodus again. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. A covenant is a, it's a relationship between two people. And there are, are stipulations for that relationship. So God is making the covenant with his people, the Mosaic covenant, where he's saying, look, 
if you want to be my people and want me to be your God, here's my rules and regulations. Here's the law that I'm commanding you today to keep. And the people there in Exodus 19 say, hey, you know what? We're good. We'll do that. In fact, they double down in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, Moses did, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Okay, how'd that work out for Israel? If you know anything about the Old Testament, there's a reason there's a New Testament. And it's not because they got this right. It didn't work out well for them. They failed to keep all of the words of the covenant. Just as you and I have failed to keep all of the words of the covenant. They couldn't do it. And the Lord knew that when he gave the covenant. And that's one of the reasons why he provided, again, back in Leviticus, I told you we're going to be there, Leviticus 16 again. That's one of the reasons why he provided a way to atone for their sins, for an offering to be brought on the day of atonement into the Holy of Holies to atone for the guilt and the sins of the people of Israel. Look at verse 15 of Leviticus 16. It says this, Then he, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil into the Holy of Holies and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat where the glory of God hovered above and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, verse 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place. He shall satisfy God's wrath against the people, against the holy place because of the, notice the language, the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. That's why this offering needed to be offered. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting. Notice the separation here. No one can be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And she'll take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he's made an end of the atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, then he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The picture that God provides through this ceremony. There's nothing magical about the goats, okay? It's a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness at work with his people to remove their sins from them. That's why the sins are confessed over the head of this goat and then the goat is sent out into the wilderness and let go so that it would never come back again, so that it was this picture for the people of Israel. Our sins are expiated is the word in theology. They're removed from us and God's wrath is satisfied, propitiated against our sins. Our sins have been atoned for. Because again, the stipulation was there. You want a relationship with me, God said? You need to obey. Israel said, awesome, we'll obey everything. Did not take long for them to fail on that. And yet God in his mercy and his grace provided a way through a sacrifice 
this concept of the Day of Atonement for their sins to be forgiven. So now we come to Jesus. Now he is our high priest entering into the Holy of Holies. And just like those high priests of old had to bring a sacrifice with them for the sins of the people and for himself, Jesus enters not with a sacrifice for his own sins because he had none. But still, Jesus has to enter into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice for our sins, the sins of the people. That's what he's saying in verse 3 of chapter 8. Just as the Old Testament high priest had to have a sacrifice, so too this priest. He also must have a sacrifice. And we find that sacrifice described for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, notice the similarity in language here, in this heavenly abode, this heavenly sanctuary, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Y'all, the Levitical calendar still today has the Day of Atonement on it. Why? Because the sacrifices that are offered on the Day of Atonement are not sufficient as a once-for-all sacrifice. That's why every single year the high priest had to go back into the Holy of Holies. Again, that's why every single year the goat and the, 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 the two goats had to be brought one sacrifice, the blood shed, because the, the, the wages of sin is death, and this goat dies for the sins of the people. And then the other goat has the, the, the sins of the people laid on, the, on its head, and it's sent out into the wilderness. But every year they had to do that. Why? Because there was nothing that was lasting about this. They had to always be going through this process, again, as a shadow, as a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice would come that would come when Jesus on the cross became both the goat that was the sin offering and the goat that was the one that carried our sins away. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system with the Day of Atonement and the high priest was anticipating what we're finding and reading about with Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 8. He had to bring a sacrifice just like the Old Testament priest had to bring. But here's the thing. Jesus' sacrifice was better. Point number two tonight. Recognize the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not a goat. It's not a bull. It's not a calf. And it's not something that he's got to do over and over and over and over again. It's done. That's why he's seated. He's finished on the cross. It is done to tell us die. It is finished. It's over. Once for all, he's done it. The sacrifice that Jesus offers is better because why? Because he's the better high priest. Y'all, he's in a better sanctuary, a better holy of holies, and he's there because of a better sacrifice, and that is the sacrifice of his own blood, the blood that forgives our sins and cleanses them from us. But as we think about the sacrificial system, I mentioned earlier this concept of the Mosaic Covenant Jesus offers his own sacrifice, but I already told you he wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood or the Levitical law, so he must not have been fulfilling part of the Mosaic covenant with his sacrifice or enacting the Mosaic covenant, rather, with his sacrifice. And that's true. He was enacting a different covenant with his sacrifice. His sacrifice was not about the law of the Old Testament. 
it was about the anticipation of the new covenant that he talks about here. And that's where our author goes next in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, the mediator of the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, the law was who? Was Moses. Well, we've already established Jesus is better than Moses. So the covenant that Jesus enacts, that Jesus mediates for us, is better than the Mosaic covenant. It's got better promises. Well, what then were the promises of the Old Testament so we can understand why the better promises of the new covenant are better? Deuteronomy 28, one through two says this, and if you are, or if you've rather faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings that he goes through right after this shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the promises of the Mosaic Covenant were blessings for obedience. Israel, you want to be blessed by God? Obey God. Okay? Because the flip side, the other promise on the negative side with the Old Testament covenant, with the Mosaic covenant, was this in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses that he then goes on to elaborate shall come upon you and overtake you. And again, to go back to our daily Bible reading, we're in the book of Ezekiel as Ezekiel is watching all of this come to fruition. Because the Israelites had gone after, after other gods. They had set up an Asherah pole, a, 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 an idol to the, the god of fertility in the temple courts. Inside the temple itself was an, a false god, the idol of jealousy, as you read about in Ezekiel today. And then on the, the walls of the temple, inside that, that holy place, there were the images of creeping and crawling things and different kinds of beasts that were Canaanite and Egyptian gods that they were worshiping in God's temple. And then you saw in the court there where in Joel, you've got the, the, the elders of Israel weeping and repenting over the sinfulness eventually because they get it. Well, in, in Ezekiel, in his vision that he sees, there's not elders weeping. There's women who are weeping, but they're weeping over the death of this false god of agriculture that was mourned every year during the time of the harvest by the Babylonian and Assyrian people. God was done with them. Because they had forsaken him. And so he brings his wrath upon the city that bears his name, the city of God. He, he brings his wrath against Jerusalem. So we've been reading about this, seeing this. These are the promises of the old covenant. But the problem is the old covenant had a fault. Look at verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look, Jesus is, is the, the mediator of a better covenant. And some of the people are going, why do we need another covenant? He's saying, well, we need another covenant because there's a problem inherent in the first one. The problem not being in the covenant itself because the covenant was from God. But the problem being in the people's in, inability to, to, to keep their end of the bargain in that relationship. This is the bad news of the gospel, isn't it? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can hold up our end of the bargain when it comes to this relationship covenant with God. With If you obey perfectly, then you'll be blessed. Then you'll be good with God. 
from the Garden of Eden onward, we've been failing on, at that, haven't we? And so there's a fault there. And if there is a fault within the covenant itself, it's that it provides no solution for that failure. All the Mosaic covenant can do is condemn. It cannot justify. It cannot deal with our problem of this alienation and separation from God. But this new covenant with better promises is the answer. Verse 8 of chapter 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant within the house of Israel and with the, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. That covenant was, was faulty because they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, the reason why this covenant is better is because it's not going to be based on our performance. It's not going to be based on our performance. Jesus is here with a new covenant that's not based on our performance, but as we'll find out, based on his performance for us. Our final point tonight, recognize the superiority of that covenant. Superiority not only of the worship, the, the, the sanctuary that he dwells in right now, seated at the right hand of God. He, the Holy of Holies where he is is better than any other Holy of Holies. And his sacrifice that opened the door for him there is better than any other sacrifice. And the covenant that was brought by that sacrifice is so much better than any other covenant. The new covenant actually doesn't first appear in the New Testament, but it first appears where? In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 3 through 4, we read this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, contextually remember what's going on in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is anticipating and even witnessing the early stages of what comes to final fulfillment and fruition with the time of Ezekiel. He's seeing the exiles being carried off to Babylon. He's seeing the destruction of God's people. He's seeing the judgment, the curses for their failure at keeping the Mosaic covenant. And in the midst of witnessing all that, he gives a hope of a future new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Where's the stipulation on us with the new covenant? It's not there. Notice it's not if you do this, then I will do this. The new covenant is enacted as God enters in in a, a one-way participation with us. He says, this is what I'm going to do with the new covenant. Here are the blessings that I will bring for this new covenant. And our writer in Hebrews 8 10 through 12 quotes this new covenant. It's the same as what you see up on the screen behind me. Here's it from Hebrews. You can read along with it on the screen behind me if you want from Jeremiah. Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, the writer of Hebrews saying, Jesus has 
inaugurated this covenant. That his sacrifice, that his work on our behalf, that his being in the holiest of holies, seated to the right hand of the throne of the majesty, has enacted this covenant for us, inaugurated this covenant for us. And notice the the elements here. What are the better promises here? Uh, Right away, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, in Christ, before Christ, we are only inclined to what? Evil. And that is what we are bent on all the day long. That's why even our good deeds are considered as filthy rags before God. Because all we are is prone towards and inclined towards evil. We cannot choose good before Christ. But in Christ, we are now able to not only choose good, but to obey where previously our hearts were only inclined to evil. Now they've got the law of God inscribed upon them. And it's written on our minds and in our hearts, suggesting a a natural inclination to obey God. Right? The, The new creation that we are as a result of God's work in us through Christ. Now we have a natural inclination to desire to obey God, to grow in Christ-likeness. Our default now trends towards God and away from the flesh, whereas prior to Christ, our default was towards the flesh and away from God. Ezekiel chapter 36 expounds upon the new covenant when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you, notice the language here, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you to do that. Now, as part of the new covenant. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing what? That it is God who is at work in you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. This is a promise that's ours in Christ because of the new covenant. Next he goes, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a, a... A statement of God, a promise of God that has echoes that go way back in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. He says to Israel, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will be your God. You will be my people. Exodus, or sorry, Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Deuteronomy 26, 18. And the Lord has declared today, you are a people for his treasured possession. In other words, you are his people, and he is what? Your God. Deuteronomy 29, 12 through 13. So that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you. Okay, so this promise over and over again, uh, he is going to be our God, and we are going to be his people. Not in this weird way like people are talking about their person these days. I don't, it kind of creeps me out. Like the term bestie creeps me out. Um, BFFs, before that, gave me skin crawls. Talking about my person, weird. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like, yeah, I don't know. Just don't talk to me about your person. Talk to me about your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your fiance or your husband or your wife, okay? Let's just agree to that. This is not some ooey-gooey, like, romantic thing between God and Israel. 
or God in us. This is a covenant relationship fully realized. The aim of the Mosaic covenant was what? To, to enable fellowship and intimacy between man and God. And it could not do that. Why? Because was there a problem with God? No, there was a problem with what? With us. We couldn't obey to have that fellowship with God. So then this new covenant comes in between us and God that is meant to pave the way for the final realization, which, by the way, comes in Revelation 21.3, where we will know this once and for all. In Revelation 21.3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the day we're looking forward to. That's what we're aiming at. That's what the new covenant is paving the way for us to get to. And we will get there once we are done with this world, done with these fleshly shells that we inhabit, and sin is completely abolished and gone and no more. Then this day will come, the inauguration in the new heavens and new earth, and we will fully realize that God is our God and we are with him in permanent, unending, eternal covenant relationship with him. Jeremiah 31's new covenant promises are phenomenal. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, they're ours in Christ. Because why? Because he is our high priest. I will be my God, they shall be my people. And then there's this other phrase where it says, and they shall not teach saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Those that are gonna be there for the full realization of the new covenant are all gonna be believers. There's not gonna be any evangelism in heaven. No evangelism on the new earth. You're not going to look at somebody and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? They're going to say, yeah, let's talk about Jesus. We, we both know him. So this picture is a picture of there being everyone there inhabiting, living together, and they all know God. Imagine what that's going to be like. How do we get there? How is this different? These promises are great and all. But how is this different? What gives? How can there be nothing on our end for this? Because of the final promise where he says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus and his sacrifice is the only way that that is possible. It's only because of the death of Christ for you and for me that God can say, I will remember your sins no more. That's the only reason. And so we've got this amazing, phenomenal, glorious covenant that we have in Jesus. And our passage ends by saying this, in speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, in, in other words, outdated. We no longer abide by the same rules and regulations. It's no longer, hey, if you obey, then you're good. If you don't obey, then you're going to be cursed. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Paul writes this. For all who rely on the works of the law, the Mosaic Covenant, are under a curse. For it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The blessings and the curses right there, right? Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then this is what Paul says in verse 13. Here's the new covenant for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that in him, in one of his descendants, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. The blessing of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The old covenant superseded by the new covenant, which is such a better deal. And I said a couple times, man, there's, there's nothing required of you. Well, let me provide a caveat to that. There is one thing, and that's faith and repentance. You may say, well, Pastor PJ, that's two things. No, it's one thing. It's one coin called salvation with two different sides to it. Faith in what? Trusting that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Your inability to be perfect. Trusting that he died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Trusting that he rose from the dead so that you will live forever with him. Okay, That's the faith component. And then the repentance component is this. Surrendering everything to follow him. Saying I'm no longer going to live for myself my agenda, my desires, my goals, but I'm going to live completely for Jesus and for everything that he wants, okay? That's what you bring to the table, so to speak, with the new covenant. You bring faith and repentance, you get everything else that he's just described for you, including, most importantly, I will remember their sins no more. Jesus as our high priest is so, so good. So good. And there's so much to it. And I know tonight may have felt like you're drinking from an Old Testament fire hose. But I wanted you to get a, a glimpse under the hood, so to speak, on this doctrine of our salvation. This doctrine of Christ as our high priest. So that you can begin to wrap your mind a little bit more around why this is so significant to our writer why this matters so much to him, why he's writing about this time and time and time again. Because for you and I, we might sit here and go, okay, we get it, great, he's our high priest. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. We sing about it, we get it, clearly we get it. Come on, let's move on. Now, when we begin to really pull back the curtain on what that means, no pun intended on that, by the way, it's phenomenal what that means your appreciation for what happened when Christ died on the cross and the temple veil that separated man from the Holy of Holies was torn in two from the top down. As though God's saying, I'm done with the Mosaic Covenant, guys. That's not how you're going to maintain a relationship with me anymore. I've got a new covenant for you. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much in your words, so many rocks to turn over, so many 
avenues to explore, so many verses to consider, so many passages to read, so many doctrines to appreciate. God, help us not to be content with just the surface, but to say, I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to dig deeper. I want to appreciate even more than I do right now. God, give us a, a hunger that is not content to just say, yeah, that's great that, that you're my high priest. That's great that you saved me from my sins. That's, that's great that you remember my sins no more. That's great that there's a, a new covenant. But Lord, give us a, a sense of awe and wonder about that. And keep that fresh in our minds, God, so that we never grow complacent, that we, we never sit here and go, yeah, this is old news. What's next? There's nothing next. There's nothing better than this. There's nothing better than this. The fact that Jesus right now, Father, right now as we sit here tonight, Jesus is at your right hand living to make intercession for us, that he is that minister for us right now. And if he weren't, God, then we would be dead in our sins. What an amazing reality, God one that transcends so many of our cares and concerns and anxieties and wants and desires in this world. Things that we say, if only I had this, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. Or why doesn't God answer my prayer for this? Why don't I have this when this other person has these things? God, forgive us for forgetting that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is enough, that what we have in Jesus and the fact that he is interceding for us, God, there's nothing better than that. Lord, forgive us for when we fear, when anxiety grips our hearts and we look at the headlines and we look at what's going on in the world. We hear words that scare us like inflation and mandates and vaccines and COVID and, and China and Iran and, and war and everything else. And, and all of these things, they grip our heart and they cause us to fear and we forget that, no, you are the one that's on the throne, that you are driving everything towards the culmination of your plan for world history and your plan for us if we are in Christ is that we will one day be with you forever and ever. Why? Because we have a great high priest who's seated at the right hand of your throne who right now is interceding for us. God, help us to love you more as a result of the depth of your greatness, the depth of your theology that you've provided for us in this book called the Bible that we get to read and study and learn more and more and more about. And to think, God, that we are going to spend all of eternity learning more about who you are and understanding different facets of your greatness, never fully plumbing the depths of our glorious and amazing God. God, I pray that right now we would close that gap maybe just a little bit as you continue to teach us more about yourself until you call us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.